Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and I'm delighted to be bringing you a, a special episode this week. Uh, some of you may know that uh, recently we convened the 2022 Energy Efficiency Summit, and the keynote, or at least one of the keynotes, was the California Energy Commissioner, Andrew McAllister. Um, before we got to the summit, though, we uh, we brought together our, our members and, and partners in, in Melbourne for an intimate chat uh, with the commissioner. We wanted to make sure our our friends in Melbourne uh, didn't entirely miss out on the on the roadshow, and it was a, a fantastic discussion that canvassed the incredible effort that California has made on energy efficiency over more than 40 years now and I guess what we can learn in this moment in Australia when we're redoubling our efforts uh, on the demand side to improve affordability uh, and bring down emissions. It was a really great chat, lots of fun. Um, So uh, uh, without further ado, uh, I'll hand over, well, to me, uh, introducing the California Energy Commissioner at the event in Melbourne last week. I'm Luke Menzel, I'm CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council. Delighted you could all come down and join us for this chat. As Holly says, we're at a remarkable moment uh, in uh, Australian policymaking, but also policymaking around the world. Um, we're excited in Australia because there's, there's a new government, um, there's a new enthusiasm for the energy transition, but obviously there's a there's a really uh, a sobering context in which this is all happening, which is effectively a global energy crisis and an affordability crisis. And so, um, energy efficiency critical to emissions reduction, but it's also critical to uh, taking care of our most vulnerable as we move through this transition, particularly in the in the near term. Um, which is why, uh, uh, in a couple of days in Sydney, we're convening the 2022. Energy Efficiency Summit with our friends from ACOS and AI Group and the Property Council and about 25 other supporting partners to come together and actually put a flag in the sand and say, this is a non-negotiable. We need to make put this right at the heart of our energy transition. So that's what we're doing on Thursday. But today, here in Melbourne, we're giving you the opportunity to connect with this amazing gentleman, the, uh, the California Energy Commissioner, Andrew McAllister, um, who has just been reappointed to his third term uh, at the CEC, but this is second tour of duty coming down to Australia and helping us raise the profile of this critical topic. He joined us for the, the conference back in 2017, and you were so great. We got you back for a return, an encore. Um, and uh, partly because, you know, we, we've got a fantastic relationship with California, um, but also because uh, California has been leading in this space for so long. And uh, there's a lot to learn, but there's also some shared challenges, which I think we're going to, to get into over the course of this conversation. So maybe let's start by welcoming the California Energy Commissioner, Andrew McAllister. So I thought it might be worth starting, Andrew, with the origin story, right, um, of, the, of the commission, because it's a kind of fun one, because it goes, it goes all the way back to Ronald Reagan when he was the governor of California and who had actually signed the document that formed the commission, right? Exactly. So, so back in the 70s, in the early um, 
early sort of mid 70s, uh, energy efficiency was not really a thing. I mean, it wasn't a practice. It wasn't nobody could make a career in it. It really wasn't um, wasn't understood. You know, back then we just thought that there were increasing economies of scale forever, right? So you build build bigger and more power plants, and just that would reduce the unit cost of energy, and and eventually it'd be too cheap to meter, right? When we were, when we had all these nuclear plants. So the Rand Corporation did a study uh, that that. That basically projected demand is continuing to grow linearly, at least, and uh, we were going to need nuclear power plants on every 50 miles along the beautiful California coast. I don't know how many of you have been to California and seen the coast, but that is not what you want to do with the beautiful California coast. And so, um, a number of kind of innovative academics and scientists uh, based around Berkeley, California, Berkeley National Lab, and the University of California. Um, in, really centered on uh, around um, a man named Art Rosenfeld, um, sort of at that time figured out that if you, you did a little bit of efficiency with refrigerators, uh, you could save so much energy that you wouldn't need any of these nuclear plants. And so they did the they did the calculations back then. Refrigerators were just obscenely inefficient. They used so much energy. They didn't have any insulation. You know, they had actually heating coils around the around the gaskets. I mean, to keep from freezing up, and they just had all of these features without any regard for actual optimization of the, of the energy consumption. So, anyway, a few calculations, you know, and they figured out, okay, well, let's pass the first refrigerator standard, and they did that. And lo and behold, the the, the refrigerators got better. They got cheaper. Not only did they get more efficient, but they became better products with more features. And, uh, and a larger volume inside for, for the exterior volume. And so, like, we saw this phenomenon of energy efficiency, just, just all the light bulbs went off, and uh, we did more and more products. And California started to regulate uh, appliances. Um, and uh, uh, so during that initial time, uh, there were two legislators, Al Alquist and Charlie Warren, uh, who were who were kind of hip to this development and were trying to get California to make it central to its energy policy. And they came up with the Warren Alquist Act. And uh, they, they talked through, you know, building standards were in there, energy efficiency uh, appliance uh, standards were there, a thing called load management standards were there, which is incredibly prescient um, authority, along with doing forecasting and, and permitting power plants and a bunch of other things, right? The Energy Commission is, has, has a broad range of authorities. Anyway, this uh, bill, uh, it had just barely enough uh, uh, votes in the legislature to pass and go to the governor, then Ronald Reagan, uh, his desk. And Reagan was not going to sign this bill. <laughs> it, was in his, it was gathering dust in his pile. And then the second oil shock came uh, back in the, in the mid-'70s. And he was like, oh, my God, I have an energy policy. Where was that bill? <laughs> you know. And uh, then he turned around. He signed the Warren Alquist Act, and that formed the Energy Commission. Uh, but by that time, it was towards the end of his term. And uh, the next governor, uh, it fell to the next governor to actually appoint the first commissioners, you know, sort of get the thing stood up as the energy policy agency for California. And that governor was Jerry Brown. Um, so, so Jerry was uh, just totally committed to this endeavor from the very start. And uh, when he became governor again um, in 2010, I guess he took office in 2011, um, that's, I had a, I had a relationship with a bunch of the people that worked with him. Mm-hmm. And that, so he appointed me first. And then, uh, and then again, and now Governor Newsom just appointed me for a third time. So I had no idea I'd be doing this for this long. But uh, <laughs> the longest I've ever held a job. But uh, it's a good gig, and we're making a big difference. And um, you know, luckily, this, this year we have 
uh, big, uh, Governor Newsom has, has really invested our budget surplus in a massive climate package um, that just across the board, from everything from working lands uh, you know, to the transportation space uh, to, uh, to buildings uh, and energy efficiency, we're just investing, investing massively. So, so it's really great. So the history is kind of interesting. It almost didn't happen, yep. um, but uh, you know, uh, fortuitously it did. So, for uh, long-suffering energy efficiency policy wonks in the room, this this idea of having, I guess, you know, the, the building code and appliance standards sort of integrated. Um, with uh, some of the the permitting around new generation, and then the forecasting. So in a, in Australia, that's smeared across a whole bunch of different p- parts of government. Uh, you know, energy market agencies. We've got AEMO doing the integrated system plan. We've got the folk in uh, DQ doing the, the gems. You've got the Australian Building Codes Board, and none of them really talking to each other. And so this is a little bit of a mind-blowing moment when I sort of got my head around what the remit of the, the commission has been. And what, what has that sort of integrated approach allowed California to do that other parts of even the US haven't been able to do on, it, on the demand side specifically? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I guess I'll, I'll sort of finish up that moment in the 70s. Well, so in this, what happened is you, there's this virtuous cycle with industry. So, like, we started to regulate appliances, we started to do building standards, uh, but particularly on the appliances. You know, the refrigerator manufacturers, they didn't, they were, they went to the federal government and they said, well, we're having to produce one kind of refrigerator for California and, you know, other kinds of refrigerators for the rest of the country. This doesn't work. Um, you know, can you help us? And the federal government said, okay, well, we'll, we'll start doing appliance regulations uh, nationwide. But the law, the Energy Policy Act of, of that year um, was sort of r- roughly off, altered at the same time as the Energy Commission started. It gave California a special place where California can do energy efficiency appliance standards and other states can either follow us or they can go with the often less stringent federal standard. And so that sort of put California on the road to be a, kind of a special case and, you know, and, and, and uh, that a lot of jurisdictions look to for, for leadership. And so that's, we've kind of maintained that leadership position. And so, um, I mean, the brilliance of the of that the conception of that that um, of, of the agency that we have of that law was that it, it basically said, look, energy efficiency. Um, you know, our job is to uh, prevent the wasteful and uneconomic use of energy, um, along with uh, doing the forecast for all of our energy. So, electricity, gas, uh, liquid fuels. Um, you know, that that forecast is really a key resource for the state. Um, so now we're forecasting wedges um, of, you know, electrification of transportation, fuel substitution. We're forecasting, you know, rooftop solar. We're forecasting expected energy efficiency. So all that gets rolled up into, into what uh, the, the, the overall total, you know, forecast looks like. And um, so it's taking the impacts of the building standards and the impact of the appliance standards, the impacts of fuel substitution and electrification of transportation, the impacts of rooftop solar, and, and projecting them forward, actually counting on them, you know, the, and then trying to find the most likely scenario. So then that forecast goes over to our sister agencies, you know, the Public Utilities Commission that regulates the utilities and tells them what energy they can and cannot purchase, right? It goes over to the independent system operator, uh, who does our transmission planning. And so they plan their transmission capacity expansion model on, on the forecast. So, so you really have an integrated, in that way, you have our agencies with their various hats on, their various, various roles, um, uh, reading from, you know, singing from the same hymnal, you know, really. So, so there's just not, um, 
Uh, and, and all the stakeholders know this. So like the California Building Industries Association, all the large production builders, they know that, our, that everybody's looking at the building code and that you know, it, we, we have a mandate to do what we do. It's, it feels like it really firms it up as a, a trusted resource in the yeah. energy transition, yes. right? It's not something that's off on the, off on the fringes. Yeah. It's something that's central to planning, and there's an expectation that it's going to turn up. And why is there that expectation? Is because it's been turning up consistently for 40 years. Yeah. And so you know if you, if you lean into it, you're able to have those benefits and, and trust that they're going to show up when you need them. And that's, that's uh, incredibly important just when you're managing, I guess, growth of demand over a period of time. It's much, much more important as you've got an energy system in transition that you're rebuilding in real time and having to make incredible investments in the that's supply right. side, right? And, yeah, and, and um, you know, I think as we, as we march towards this renewables transition, right now we're about 63% carbon free and we have to get to 100% by 2045. I think the the electric sector we're going to do that and probably well before 2045. Um, but you know as we have a system that really does kind of ebb and flow um, by the rhythms of nature, you know, sun and wind and you know we're going to put in a lot of storage to sort of smooth that out, but um, you know now we we really need to appreciate the the demand side in terms of time and location as well. And so um, the, building, the building standards, for example, we, 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 uh, we have to show that they are cost-effective. So anything we, requ- we require as a minimum standard in the building standards, we have to show that it's cost-effective. Um, but we do that on an hourly basis, like 87, 60 hours per year, measures that actually are more efficient during you know, peak times when energy is more expensive and when the, the system is likely to be more stressed, you know, summer you know, middle of August, you know, in the summertime, in the evening, in the early evening, late afternoon, measures that really are efficient there or can perform well there um, are going to get favored in the building code. And so that's important because, you know, those buildings are going to be here 30, 50, 80 years from now. And so we know that the grid is going to be fully renewable by then. And those buildings are going to be designed and built um, to be, you know, to work well in that environment. Which is a perfect example of what we can we can learn from California, and we've just been through this incredible Barney around an upgrade to the National Construction Code. We sort of got to seven stars. That's being implemented on different trajectories in different states, but we're there. And but it was a hard fought win um, because the, the the cost benefit analysis wasn't really taking into account the realities of a twenty first century energy system. Yeah, yeah. And so you know that's something that that, that you know. An example of the way that the deeper relationship between California, understanding what you're doing in your code, and the way that thinking about the, something which is sort of can seem to the uninitiated as kind of not really having much to do with generation or with you know the way you balance load on a grid, but it's actually crucial, it's crucial. to it is how you build your buildings. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know where's that energy going? I mean, I, and all this is not to say that we're not focused, you know, very myopically on the supply side too. I mean, yeah. you know, we're trying to build out solar and wind as fast as we possibly can. I mean. It's, it's the, the quantities of these renewables that we're going to build out year after year after year to reach our goals uh, is just, it's mind-blowing, yeah. you know. And, and we have these supply chain issues that have kind of s- slowed things down. And so this next five years when, you know, and at the same time, we're living with these incredible impacts of climate change. You know, it's already here upon us. So not, we're, having to, we're having to adapt at the same time we're having to, having to mitigate, at, you know, at the same time we're having to you know, accelerate this this uh, renewables build out, um, but so so we the modeling that we do on the supply side 
Um, you know, it's really pointing towards this incredible build out, but it's also, it's also showing the value of load flexibility. So, so, and I think the, the, the matching up of supply and demand is kind of the, it's sort of the concept of our time. Um, that's, it, it does three things. You know, the, this flexible demand that we're talking about, um, it really does three things that we have to have in our grid. It helps shore up reliability. So when you have flexible load, it helps, you know, the system, you, you, if you've got a really stressed system on a hot summer afternoon and you can shift some load away from that period, that shores up reliability, you know, keeps the lights on. Um, it also, um, in the near term, it helps us decarbonize, right? Because it lets us use more of that energy in the middle of the day when it's all, all solar and then, you know, avoids using maybe gas peakers or coal, you know, in other times of the day. Um, and it also helps manage cost. So it improves load factors, the, the, the optimization factor of the grid itself. So, you know, it really improves the sort of uh, the, um, the, financial, the financials around the distribution grid. You know, so it sort of helps you defer some investments here and there and really helps you, helps you manage your, your CapEx. And so, um, you know, keeping rates uh, from spiraling upward, uh, that's, that's a serious equity issue. So that's one, you know, uh, reliability and decarbonization. At the end of the day, it's going to be reliability and uh, cost management because we know we're going to be all decarbonized. It's just a matter of whether we're going to be decarbonized with an expensive system or a manageable system. And so the demand side is going to make us, it's going to allow us to land in a manageable system and not a super expensive system. So, so you mentioned on the way through that uh, when the commission was founded, you had this uh, rulemaking ability around load management standards, yeah. but they kind of lay kind of dormant for a long time, right? And they're coming into their own? Yeah, so uh, they're, they're, they have been used a couple of times, but in very sort of niche circumstances. Um, but load management is, so, so I did load management back in the 80s in South America, you know, and it basically back in the, in the analog era, right, where you pick up the phone and you say, hey, Industry X, you know, could you turn off one of your, you know, we don't have enough capacity, the lights are going to go out, could you turn off one of your production lines, you know, or turn on your backup diesel generator, you know, that, that was load management back then. Um, curtailable rates and, and, you know, time of use rates, um, very simplistic. But, you know, now we're in the digital age. We're fully in the digital age. And the monopoly sort of regulated utility sector is the one sector of our economy where, where we really just aren't operating like that in a, in a, in a sort of, uh, you know, data-centric uh, way. And so um, we, so these load management standards are, um, we're applying them, and we're applying them in a way that's going to help create a platform. It's going to essentially create a, a, um, an ecosystem of prices to devices. So web-based tools, all the utilities will put their time, time-based rates, you know, time of use, critical peak pricing, you know, whatever their time-based rates are, will be in an API-accessible you know, web-based uh, platform called Midas. And um, so any, um, and then there'll be, you know, as we do, as we, as we regulate into our appliances, native load flexibility. So, you know, pool pumps and, and um, water heaters and EV chargers and, um, you know, they increasingly water heaters will have, you know, native, will have a, you know, a port on there or some hardware on there that allow them to receive a signal to turn on, to turn off, you know, to sort of uh, to overheat, include, you know, if you want to use them as a battery, thermal battery. So this ecosystem will be automatable such that if there's a, you know, a congestion signal from the system operator, it goes through this platform, goes all the way down to a million devices out there and helps them and tells them to modulate their load 
automatically behind the scenes in a way that basically nobody even detects, but we get, you know, we get a few hundred megawatts of, of load savings when we really need it. And so, uh, so that is coming, and we're really, um, it, it's, a, it's really the kind of next generation of grid management for reliability. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to level the playing field. It's going to open up a lot of possibilities for third parties to work with different customer segments to, to get their loads prepared for um, you know, responding to real-time pricing and, and other time-dependent rates. Um, for, you can even, um, it can also, this platform can also carry a carbon signal. So you know, we can, we're sending out every five minutes. There's a, there's a signal that goes out to, the, to all the users in California that what's the carbon content of the grid at that moment. And so if you wanted to organize your particular loads around you know, some threshold of carbon content, you could do that. And so in an automated way. So you know, sort of set it and forget it. So, so that, that will help the utilization factor of the grid and really save us all a lot of money and enhance reliability all at once. So you know, that's sort of, it makes sense, right? I mean, the digital age allows us to do all these things in real time, you know, and we're being tracked by advertisers just by you know, having our phone in our pocket. And the you know, amazing amount of data is being collected about us. Well, it's about time that kind of functionality came to the electric system. Well, Not that we're going to send everybody advertising. <laughs> Be very Californian. <laughs> yeah, really. hey, um, so, so you've got this, this platform that's going to allow aggregators to step in and do, and do this sort of load shaping, but I understand there's also some regulations being uh, contemplated that will actually just sort of do, uh, make some presets in certain types of appliances about yeah, when so they turn on and off and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, so we're favoring load-flexible devices in the building code, for example. So if you, if you put in a battery, if you put in a flexible water heater, even though it's not mandated in the building code, you get a few points in the building code that helps you comply. Um, and so we got Load Management Standards Authority. And then we ha- also have this newish authority that, that uh, allows us to uh, regulate appliances and require them to have native load flexibility as a condition of sale in the state of California. And so, um, so we started with pool pumps. We're moving on to water heaters. Uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep moving into loads that make sense, like EV chargers and batteries, and just uh, so make them compatible with this prices-to-devices ecosystem so that, so that you know, everything is sort of talking to each other on a, on a normalized platform. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, we, we are in the process of developing um, those regulations to um, identify you know, how exactly to, to uh, regulate in that, um, that native load flexibility. You know, we've got a lot of cheap digital technologies. The incremental cost isn't very much. And, uh, and you know, you can imagine five, ten years from now, we'll, just, we'll have millions of these devices out there that are kind of ebbing and flowing along with the grid and, and helping enhance reliability. Uh, a big part of the reason why you're going to have all those millions of devices out there is there's this transition away from yeah. gas. Yeah, right? so that, there's an incredible opportunity, right? I mean, that's, and here in Australia, just like in California, we all know electricity is the platform of the decarbonized future. And so, uh, you know, having, um, uh, you know, I think it's very clear that the system, we're going to double or triple energy use, at least double electricity use, rather, um, with EVs, you know, with electrification of transportation and with uh, electrification of heating loads and other loads in buildings. And so this amazing investment, this generational investment in end uses, you know, is, is a huge opportunity to make sure that those end uses do what we need them to do. Um, and, and similarly, on the supply side, this huge investment in renewables um, and the grid itself is also, you know, this, this amazing investment. I mean, this is sort of like, you know, the change from coal to oil, you know, around World War II. Or, or you know, it's really a transformational um, uh, sort of a paradigm shift 
that is taking place in energy. And so uh, we really have to take advantage of it. We're not going to have a second chance. I mean, we really have to get it right this time. And so it goes to the, I mean, yes, electrification, yeah. but the, the quality of electrification quality. is incredibly important because yeah. you can do electrification in a way which, uh, for want of a better word, is dumb, but sort of just electric loads turning off potentially at times of the day that are incredibly unhelpful aren't aligned with renewable availability. Yeah. Or you can do it in a smart way where it's it's flexible or it's the load is just shaped because of the presets on the device yeah, exactly. um, so that it, it, it aligns with that renewable generation. It sounds like that's something that you're thinking very carefully about to make sure yeah. that the appliances that you're incentivizing have that capability. Yeah, I mean, we, and all the, it's, you know, it's easy to describe, but, you know, each of these, um, each of these kind of efforts, like this load management standards efforts, we, we've worked with the utilities and, and it's, you know, dozens and dozens of stakeholders. Every building code update, you know, we work with literally hundreds of stakeholders. We do dozens of workshops. We have thousands of comments into the docket. And it takes two, two years to do all that, you know. So, so the process, um, I think, is... I, I really do uh, believe in the process of, uh, you know, the public dialogue that's on the record. We have dockets that are incredibly rich so we can make decisions that then are backed up by the factual pattern. And so um, that means when we, when we do something bold like these load management standards or like requiring solar in the building code or, uh, or you know, you know uh, regulating away the incandescent light bulb, which we did a few years ago, um, that... Anybody who wants to stand up and yell at us and, you know, try to, like, take us to court or whatever they're going to do, they're going to lose because we have such an incredible rich, um, they know they're going to lose. So they don't even bother, you know, because we, our, our process is that robust. So that's, that's what you call robust democracy, you know. And, and so California maybe has this, this sort of reputation, you know, crazy Californians getting ahead of everybody and all. But it actually, if you look under the hood... It is, uh, it's a very strong process that has, that's incredibly accountable and it lands in a way that's, that's very rational. Um, it's just, you know, it's just new and different, which is what scares some people. But it's, but it's certainly, I think our track record shows that, that, uh, you know, the ideas that come out of those processes, those consultative processes, and those regulatory processes are very robust. On that theme of electrification, the, the flip side of it is actually transitioning away from gas for low temperature heat. And in, yeah. in a context of homes, you're talking about space heating and, and, and water heating, which leads to a whole bunch of questions about, well, what are we doing with the gas grid? And I know one of the things that as we've yeah. been having meetings with folk over the last couple of days, this has emerged as a real theme, because this is something that you're grappling with in California in the same way we're grappling with it in Australia. Yeah, and, you know, gas not in the not-too-distant past was seen as the, you know, the clean alternative to, to coal, you know, and it was the, the clean heat, right? And so think, the idea that you'd be heating with electricity for anybody who studied engineering and sort of like, what? It just blows your mind. Um, but, but, you know, we, times have changed. And so now we have heat pump technologies, which are inherently efficient, you know, many times more efficient than gas. And if you count those molecules, you know, if you really believe that you have to get your, your, your uh, economy to net zero carbon, it doesn't take too many molecules, you know, counting too many molecules to realize that we have to essentially uh, transition away, completely away from fossil gas. And what gas system we are left with is going to have to be filled with non-fossil, whether it's methane or whether it's, you know, some other hydrocarbon or whether it's just hydrogen itself. Um, it's going to have to be radically different. And so uh, that transition is uh, something of, uh, it's, it's sort of behind the electrification discussion, uh, but it is the flip side of that discussion. And so we have 90% of our state that has retail gas distribution. And so, uh, and people like their gas. And so there's a, there's a, you know, some people just, they will not let go of their gas cooktop, their gas range. Um, you know, how many of you have used induction? 
freaking awesome, right? <laughs> I don't think this is a representative yeah. sample. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, I love my induction cooktop. I mean, I, myself, you know, Luke has visited my house when it was under construction, but I built an all-electric, you know, net-zero passive house a few years ago. Gray water, rainwater catchment, the whole deal, you know. I'm, I'm a true believer, true believer. And, and it's a, just a better product, right? So I think as people realize that, you know, the culture will go where we need it to go, but it's going to take quite a bit of effort and quite a bit of um, socialization. The zeitgeist is going to have to shift, so... Um, uh, and so on the gas side, we're going to, you know, we're going to have to, uh, I mean, our, the point B that we're probably going to end up with is a series of, instead of one big gas grid, we're going to have a series of kind of regional trunk lines at the industrial nodes, you know, and at some, at the ports, you know, sort of places where, uh, that are, that are really, there are very few other substitutes for, for high temperature, you know, for really thermal th- processes that are hard to electrify or, or that really need high temperature thermal energy. And so um, the unwinding of the gas system, you know, the sort of de- active, de- the, 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 the accelerated depreciation of it, um, covering the people who are left, you know, in that transition, who's going to be left on the, ga- on the retail gas grid? It's going to be people who can't afford to electrify or who we, ha- we haven't yet subsidized to electrify. So we have to make sure to take care of those people. I mean, I think the, the undercurrent for much of this is, is that we, in this transition, it's going to take a big investment, the huge opportunities for that investment, but we also have to make sure uh, that we take care of, you know, we, get, we give opportunity and participation to the 35, 40 45% of our populations that truly are living hand to mouth. And in California, you know, that's just the disparity between low income and, and, and the high income is just, it's obscene. And so, um, you know, people who don't have the capital to invest are going to have to have some subsidized solution. And so, uh, so that goes uh, for both the electrification, you know, sort of enterprise, uh, the, the bettering of their, their, their housing, you know, alongside that but also not leaving them with a huge gas bill because they're the last person left on the gas grid, right? So, so there really has to be sort of a compact, uh, a social compact that involves, that, that sort of unifies the investments and in the, in the de-investment, investment in the electricity grid and the, and the, 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 the disinvestment in the gas grid, um, really, and the, and the sort of public coffers, like the actual budget. Because I think um, these are... These are social issues. You know, these touch social issues way beyond just energy equity, right? They're, they're, you know, it's land use, it's housing accessibility, it's jobs. Uh, it's, you know, it's, there are lots of, you know, it's air quality. And so I think the, the, we have to bring all those sectors together. And, and that's a, you know, that would be pretty unprecedented. Uh, but it's going to have to happen if we're going to solve the climate crisis. And so the energy piece we're talking about is one important, but one part of that. Um, and so, so I think the challenge is going to be really when push comes to shove and there, are, and, and, and there are real winners and losers as we start to shift, we have to have this societal institutional robustness to, to have that broader conversation. And I, you know, that, that, that's where you know, five or ten years from now, that's where the political will is really going to get tested. Because that's how you build and maintain social license for the that's transition. Social cohesion, yeah. Right? You have to have social cohesion. We're working through this process in democracies. Yes. And there's not some autocratic leader kind of you know imposing their will. Yeah. This is something where you've got to, people have to keep voting for governments that are moving down this pathway. And the way that we do that is by bringing people along for that journey, which means different things for different cohorts. You've, you've segued pretty nicely into the conversation about retrofits. 
And um, as always happens when we hang out together, we're kind of learning from each other. And kind of the conclusion that we're sort of coming to is like California no more has that sorted out than Australia has it sorted out. And maybe almost nowhere has that properly sorted out about how you do that, like you fix the building stock and you do it at scale. Like, do you want to just reflect on that? Yeah, I mean, I think nobody's really cracked the nut. So, so in, order to, in order to get to our carbon goals, um, we have to retrofit our existing buildings, right? So new construction, we talked about the building code. You know, yeah, it was hard to get the building code updated to do all the things that, you know, we need to do. And we're, we're going to end up in the 25 building code with essentially all electric new buildings. Um, and so, you know, that's been the challenge and certainly has been, hasn't been without controversy. But compared to our existing building stock, that's the easy part. So... You know, we have maybe half of our buildings, uh, of our residential buildings, for example, were built in California before any building codes existed. Um, the building codes started in the 70s. So anything pre-70, pre-74, um, had no standards at all for energy. And so they have no, I mean, if they haven't received an upgrade already or if they haven't, you know, had a changeover that, you know, some remodeling, they don't have any insulation. They've got old knob and tube wiring. Um, you know, and they've probably got some asbestos up in the ceiling. Uh, they probably got a bunch of lead paint, um, and they probably and the chances are they probably have a low income family living there. And so, what do you do with that building? You know, you've, it's going to take a serious amount of investment to to do the energy piece, and then another serious piece of investment to do the abatement piece, um, and just bring that that housing unit kind of up to up to uh, some something near the current code. You know, you're talking fifty or sixty thousand dollars probably. And so that money has to come from somewhere. And that, you know, then you change out the heat pumps, you know, and you, you have to do a certain amount of rewiring. And so, um, you know, that's not the whole state, but that's a significant minority of the state. Um, and so we really need to both, um, you know, do enough of those projects to figure out how to get them streamlined, get the cost down, get them really sort of systematized. And along the way, we've got to figure out how to bring in private capital, how to bring in cheap financing, bring in, you know, sort of social capital, possibly social, social investors, um, to really figure out how we're going to bring that kind of money to the, you know, we have roughly 15 million residential units in California, plus another four or five million non-residential units. I mean, that's 20 million buildings that are going to need some level of, of upgrade. So... You know, that's that you, you start adding zeros to that and you're talking about, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. And so we're investing a few billion out of, you know, which is great in the next year or two. Um, but we have to really leverage that to figure out how to, um, how to how to scale and how to find the right partners. And I think we're all of us are facing the same yeah. kind of similar kind of sets of problems or sets of challenges. So the, the, the bit that I'd add to that is kind of thinking through kind of the, the industry development that needs to happen around that, the skills, yeah. the supply chains, which we've talked a bit about yeah. as well, just making sure you actually got the equipment and the building products to, to upgrade upgrade the buildings. And then the, you know, bringing it back to your sort of comments around vulnerable households and, and bringing, you know, the, uh, the less well-off along for that journey, yeah. that's potentially a proving ga- ground where there is a strong case for public investment. Absolutely. Fixing the home of, homes of renters, fixing the homes of, the, of elderly uh, California. Californians, elderly yeah. Australians, which allows... Capturing health benefits, Indeed. right? You know, right. Yeah. We've, we've been talking a little bit about the, the report that came out recently from Sustainability Victoria from the Victorian Healthy Homes Program, which found that from a, you know, a relatively cheap upgrade in yeah. the context of what you're talking about, sort of $3,000 or, or so, um, there was an $800-odd $800 
reduction in health system costs from the, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme and, of course, uh, you know, just hospital system costs here in Victoria. That, that, that's incredible sort of benefits for the public purse, but that requires a kind of galaxy brain on the part yeah, of government. Exactly. Of, uh, spend money over here, I'm going to save money over there, and that's yeah. not necessarily how, I mean, government operates in silos as well. So it's kind of how you join up that conversation. Yeah, I think that's right. But but if you know, we don't find ways to have that broader conversation. I mean, and, you know, people don't care about energy per se. I mean, the people in this room do, but most people, they just energy is not a thing to them, right? And their energy bill is a thing for them that they think about for a couple minutes a year, you know. But but like people, you know, we shouldn't expect everyone to become an energy expert. Um, it should just be a better product that they kind of know they want because their neighbor had it or whatever, and so. Um, so this transformation is going to, um, you know, I think it's going to, it's going to have to play out. I mean, it, it will necessarily play out in this broader social context, you know. And so we need to find what motivates people and and how we can really express the vision about how having a bunch of highly performing, good indoor air quality, um, low operational cost homes is going to make their life better. And, and improve their sort of freedom, you know. Yeah. And, and I think there's a there's a positive vision that we all need to work on developing that that uh, I think will be compelling. Uh, you know, it's not just about oh gosh, it's so hard. You know, it's actually <laughs> this, this point B we're aiming for is is a society that we will really want to live in. You know, and and I think um, that that's that's where. Um, I think we're getting there. You know, I do think we're getting there. Um, but this, it is a generational shift. It really is. It's a long-term shift. And that's a, that's a great point to finish on because it's, uh, we were talking about this uh, yesterday. Like, there's a huge amount of work to transition our energy system. There's a huge amount of work to, to fix our buildings, to recalibrate our businesses and the production processes. We haven't even got into that. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of effort required, a lot of investment. And jobs and a lot, a lot of jobs being created along the way, right? Absolutely. The point is that you, you can't sort of sell that effort on the basis that we're going to sort of end up in a place which is pretty much looks exactly like where we <laughs> yes. are now, right? <laughs> like that, that's that's not uh, you talk about advertising. That's not a fantastic advertising campaign. You've got to sell that vision. Exactly. You know, you're going to live in a home that's um, healthier, more comfortable, it's more affordable ultimately. And I mean, I find that you know, I just bring people into my house, and you know, we, we moved in right before the pandemic, and it's just uh, people are like, wow, it's really quiet. My back door neighbor is a fraternity. Okay, I'm, I'm really close to UC Davis, University of California, Davis. The Pike House is right behind. They're my rear neighbor. And, you know, springtime, nice warm springtime, you know, beginning of the uh, you know, spring break or whatever, you know, they tie it on back there. <laughs> and and uh, all my neighbors are like, can you call, can you tell them to shut up? And I'm like, what? I don't hear anything. Because yeah. I have this really thick, thickly insulated, triple pane window, passive house, and I don't hear, I don't hear anything. So, 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 what you're saying is your your advertising campaign for California is to take every Californian one by one through your house, through my house. <laughs> to show them how cool it is. But it is just sort of like you know, I mean, when you when you first got a, like a like an iPhone or something that worked, it just sort of like felt like in your hand, felt nice in your hand, and it sort of like worked. It's like wow, this is cool functionality. I had no idea it was there. You know, it's sort of like that. It's just this product that you didn't really know you needed that that just is better, and so. Um, and so I think you know the actual three-dimensional experience of walking through and breathing the air and just sort of seeing, talking to somebody who actually, that's all right. yeah, it's really that that that's the human experience. Yeah. It's not like oh, you know, the performance is not a spreadsheet and some calculations. It's actually like the lived experience. You know, that's what most people are gonna are gonna tune into. And so uh, you know, I think we as uh, you know, we don't talk that language. I mean, we're energy wonks, right? We're in this because we're trying to save the world and all that, and, and we know what the numbers are. So so. Um, 
you know, I think that we, we really need to find that broad-based collaboration with all sectors of society to be able to express uh, kind of the, the, the end result is going to be really a beautiful thing. Andrew, thank well, you so much. This was a lot much. of fun. Thank it, was you. A, it was so much fun. Um, I just want to thank you uh, for taking time away from your family, um, your, your, your daughters with your sister-in-law back in, uh, back in Davis. You've come down here for a week and a half to support us in uh, raising the profile of this crucial topic, which everyone in this room is so passionate about. And it, it speaks to your commitment to that, that global conversation and the, and, the, and the shared journey that we're all on. But it also hope we're, we're sharing some insights that are helpful for you to take back home to California yeah, as well. I mean, I'll, I'll just leave everyone with, you know, the, the, we, there's no room for hubris here at all, right? I mean, California's been doing this a lot. We have the fifth largest economy in the world. You know, we can, we can move markets. Um, but we don't, you know, we definitely don't have anywhere near all the answers, you know, and, and there's a lot of innovation going on here. I mean, Neighbors is an incredible resource. I mean, kudos to you. And, and just uh, local governments across the world are doing incredible things. And, and, you know, often it's small teams that are thinking creatively, that are thinking creatively that, that come up with the best ideas, you know. And so I just think we all have to just kind of be working together and, and networking and sharing, you know, without, you know, pride of ownership, all these ideas. And, uh, and that's the way we're going to get it done because uh, it's a big, big lift over the next few decades. We do not have time to each come up with our own sort of special solutions exactly. to the climate crisis. Exactly. We've got to work together, right? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hand together for Andrew McAllister. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments... You can find us on, on Twitter. The California Energy Commission is at Cal Energy, and my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management demand response, of course, you can visit the Energy Efficiency Council at ec.org.au. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, you can visit ec.org.au forward slash podcasts. For now, it's a uh, goodbye from us, and we'll catch you soon.